Turning your Bibles, if you would please, to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. John chapter 14. We are beginning a new sermon series today uh, entitled, You Shall Receive Power, as we take the next several Sundays to look at the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we're very excited to delve into the Word and to take what I think will end up being a deeper dive than we've ever taken at Grace Fellowship Church, at least in the 11 years that I've been here, uh, of looking at the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. So uh, hopefully it's an exciting thing for you as well, and hopefully the Lord will bless the reading and the preaching of his word. We are going to read through the entirety of John chapter 14 this morning to prepare our hearts and minds in the word as we then look specifically uh, at verses 16 through 26. So if you are physically able, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's holy word and read along silently as I read aloud from the gospel of John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. This is what the word of God says. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I've spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. 
Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Father, we ask you to add your blessing to the reading and the preaching of your word that we might better understand you and ourselves in the light of your glorious truth, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Two Sundays from now is Baptism Sunday. Hopefully that's something you're looking forward to. We do that usually about twice a year at our church where we celebrate the new life in Christ and get to, 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 to join in celebration as people identify themselves with the Lord, with the gospel, and with this, his local church. So that'll happen two Sundays from now. And as I baptize each person, Lord willing, I will do so in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And when I do this, I don't just do this because it's tradition. I don't just do it because it sounds right. I do this with reasons. First, it's done in accordance with what we refer to as the Great Commission. When Jesus tells his disciples to go make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, we identify ourselves with what we refer to as the Godhead or the Trinity and God's work in our lives. We belong to God the Father. We have been saved by God the Son, Jesus Christ, and we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, as Christians, we are Trinitarians by confession. What I mean by saying we are Trinitarians by confession is there is a good bit that we can learn about the Trinity from God's holy word, the Bible. But there's also quite a bit that we're not going to be able to fully reconcile when it comes to knowing God as he is, who he is, as three persons who function differently within the Trinity but are equally God. And many times people have abandoned this notion altogether, but that's also heretical because the Bible presents God as three in one. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We are Trinitarians based on what we see from the scriptures, but then also based on the conviction of our hearts and by confession. And where facts leave off, faith picks up. Hebrews 11 tells us faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. And there will always be an element to our walks with the Lord with which with all the evidence in the world, with all the evidence in the Bible, there will be a gap. And that gap is filled in by faith. And that's where the world that lacks faith says, you're nuts. And that's where those of us who have faith say, we have faith. Faith picks up where facts leave off. We are Trinitarians by confession and based on the word of God. We believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The question then is this. If we baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, if we believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, why do we tend to only live in awareness of the first two? Why do we tend to only live in awareness of the first two? 
We love that we belong to God the Father. We love the fact that we've been adopted, that we are no longer enemies of the Lord, but we are now his sons and his daughters. We are family. It doesn't take much for me to preach on that topic and to get some sort of a a hearty amen or a smile or something from the, give me something, please, something for, thank you, a, a giggle, breathe, something from the crowd talking about the relationship that we have with God the Father. We're very familiar with that. We're excited about that. We love reminding ourselves about that, but we never want to get over the fact that we've been saved by God the Son. What grace What mercy. Oh, the wondrous cross. We just celebrated Good Friday together as we looked back in somber remembrance upon what Jesus Christ has done for people like you and like me. What grace and what mercy that we have not been treated as our sins deserve, but that Jesus Christ has absorbed the wrath of God, absorbed the judgment that sinners like you and like me deserve, and we have received his righteous record, that we wear his robe of righteousness, but that he has borne upon himself the sins and the iniquity of us all. We love the fact that we've been saved by God, the son, the price he paid and the joy he did it with as he endured the cross, despising the shame and did it for the glory of his father. And we've been indwelled by the Holy spirit. And there's that. And and, thank you. And and, and we would say amen. And we would, I assume, the vast majority of Orthodox Christians, no, all Orthodox Christians would say amen in either heart, mind, or voice that we have been indwelled by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit lives within us. But it kind of falls flat. We function in our lives in a real reality, particularly in this church, of God the Father, God the Son, And we say amen to God, the Holy Spirit. But we could have a long conversation about God, the Father, and what he's done for us. We could have a long conversation about God, the Son, and what he's done done for us. You could look back on, on our website and look at sermon upon sermon upon sermon about the wonderful cross and the love of God and the wrath of God and the love of Christ and his love for sinners and how he saves people. We don't tend to talk much about the Holy Spirit. Spirit, and we do that to our shame as Christians. I don't think our church is, 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 is uniquely weak or inept at all. I, I don't think that at all. I'm just saying in the, yeah, 11, 11 years that I've been a part of Grace Fellowship Church, this is something that we acknowledge, but don't really talk about or, or teach a ton about. Well, uh, meatloaf theology is heretical. Two out of three actually is bad. So I'm looking forward to the time we'll spend. I just divided the room generationally with that comment. I'm looking forward to the time we'll spend over the next several weeks looking at God, the Holy Spirit. And I'm excited to preach about it uh, today. Now, like I said before, last week we celebrated Good Friday. The text that we just read together, the text we're looking at today, actually takes place during the same week. It takes place on what is commonly referred to as Holy Thursday, the day before Jesus died for us. Now, if you looked at the Gospel of John as a whole, up through John chapter 12, 
the focus is, for the most part, on Jesus and his public ministry. Jesus and his ministry to the world, his preaching, his teaching, the, uh, his, his performing of miracles to the general public. It ends with a high point of Jesus' ministry. If you looked in John chapter 12, his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, commonly referred to as Palm Sunday. This is Jesus' last days before he would be nailed to a cross for the sin of the world. He knows that. And therefore, you'll see in John 13, a turn is taken from the rest of the gospel, and Jesus focuses more on, or John's recording of Jesus' life focuses more on his private and his personal ministry to his disciples, starting with the washing of their feet. He only has a few days left with them. Question. If you knew, not suspected, but if you knew, not wondered, but knew you were going to be dead in a manner of days, what would you do with that time? Not, it, teach us, Lord, to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom, Psalm 90, verse 12. Not just life in general is short. I mean, if you knew the date, and the date was imminent. You knew for a fact it's within this week. You knew for a fact that you were going to be dead in a matter of days. How would you spend that time? Usually, uh, people talk about taking trips they've never taken, um, doing things they've never done, seeing things, having experiences they've They've always wanted to do and, and using that time, doing that with friends and family. That's fine, but please, let me rephrase the question. I'm not talking months, days, hours, in essence, 24 hours to a day, 168 hours in a week. If you knew that your life had less than 168 hours left within it, what would you do? More importantly, what would you say? I'm guessing... Uh, you'd probably hang out fairly close to home. Uh, I'm guessing you'd probably spend time with those closest to you. I'm, I'm guessing you would try hard to say the things that mattered most because now more than ever you are aware of a clock that is ticking and will stop. That's where we are today with Jesus. That's the scene. That's the time, that's the mood, that's the feeling of this portion of scripture. That's where we are today. So if you look at John chapter 13, we're not looking there today. It says Jesus, we learned about Jesus having washed his disciples' feet, including Judas. He predicts his betrayal by Judas. He predicts his denial by Peter. In between those two prophecies, he tells them a new commandment, that they're to what one another, that they're to love one one another, that this will be important for their relationship, their life, but also so that the world outside would then see the love that they have one for another. Now, taking a look at John chapter 14 in your Bibles, this is what we just read. Uh, we'll just quickly skim through it. Uh, in John chapter 14, verses 4 through 6, uh, Thomas uh, is asked by Jesus, uh, excuse me, Thomas responds to Jesus saying, and you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas asked a valid question saying, well, we don't know where you're going, so it's hard for us to Google that, right? It's hard for us to figure out how to get there if we don't know the destination. Verse 5, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to, to, said to him, I am the way. I am the truth. I am 
the life. And what you'll see throughout this passage, if we were to dive into most of John chapter 14, is you'll see what we see so commonly throughout the scriptures, and that is people thinking horizontally and Jesus speaking vertically. Jesus is speaking about a spiritual reality that they just don't get. And we'd be foolish to look back upon them and say, <laughs> they're so silly. Um, we only know it because of them, right? So they don't have the script to look back on. We've read it, we understand it, and people have explained it to us. Any information that we have and an explanation that we have is by God's grace in our lives through other people thousands of years later. These are people, I think, just like you and me. I think if we were there, we would have been saying probably the very same things. I think we would be just as confused. So in John 14, 6, Jesus says, well, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. And then in verse 7, he says, if you had known me, you would have known my, my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Verse 8, Philip says, Lord, show us the father and it's enough for us. And Jesus is like, you don't get it. I am the Father. The Father is in me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the manifest presence of God in human form. We are the same. But Philip doesn't get it. Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. They just don't get it. They just don't get it. Now, Jesus, who is fully God and fully what? Man hypostatic union, okay, he's not half and half, 100% God, 100% man. I would suggest to you, this would have been, even though he knows the end of the story, this would have been probably discouraging and concerning to him. See, here's Jesus who knows the end of the story. We see him as we look back on last Good Friday service in Gethsemane, sweating as it were great drops of blood. Jesus knows he's going to have victory over the grave, yet is still uh, concerned, to say the least, yet is still looking to his father saying, hey, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. Let's not neglect the fact that Jesus was not kind of human, 100% human. It's a day before he's going to die. The people he has entrusted the propagation of the gospel to are really confused. He's got his death on his mind. He's got the future of the gospel on his mind. He's got this time that he's having with it. You don't see him go, lo, you will understand soon. <laughs> no, he responds like, no, don't, don't you get it? We've spent three years together. And they just don't get it. And then Jesus promises the Holy Spirit and tells us many things about him, some of which we'll look at together today. So, Picking it up in verse 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In essence, he, he stops explaining all of these things and says, you know what? There's a helper coming. There's someone that as soon as I leave, someone else is going to take my place. And the first thing that I want to call to our attention is that the Holy Spirit isn't a thing. It's not a phenomenon. It's not a cosmic force. The Holy Spirit is a he. The Holy Spirit is a person. Now, uh, personhood is important. The topic of personhood is important, and I'll give you an example. If you would categorize yourself as pro-life, you understand human life to be sacred, to be special, to be set apart from the rest of creation as every person, born or unborn, American or otherwise, bears the image of God. Every person is an individual, a human being. They bear the, the marks of personhood. They have unique personalities, unique needs and wants and desires and hopes 
and dreams. And most importantly, just like you, each individual in the world will spend eternity somewhere. And and this is not true of animals or trees or insects or garden tomatoes or fish or birds or cicadas or anything else that the Lord God has created. We're not just members of the cosmos, as I remember hearing at the Hayden Planetarium growing up. We're not just members of the cosmos. We're people. We're humans. We're made in God's image. We're something more than other created things. Personhood is important. And personhood is important when we refer to the Holy Spirit, because look at how Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit. Look at the pronouns he uses. Look at verse 17. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Skip down to verse 26. The Holy Spirit whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, this is important really for two reasons. Probably important for many reasons. We're going to look at two. First, Jesus knows the disciples will miss him. Uh, he's lived with them for the greater part of three years. He's, he's dined with them. He's traveled with them. No doubt he's laughed. He's cried. He's prayed. He's taught them personally. Like there's those times when he would teach publicly and they would happen to be there. And then there's the backstage pass. Then there's the meal afterwards. Then there's walking by the way where you're just talking with him. He has spent time with these 12 people personally for years. Jesus was going to leave them and he wanted them to know that he would be replaced by, listen, another person. Another person in the Holy Spirit. He seeks to to comfort them with the fact that they'll not be left alone And that Jesus is leaving, but the Holy Spirit, he, the Holy Spirit, is coming. Now, you have your run-of-the-mill cults like Jehovah Witnesses who teach that the Holy Spirit is this impersonal force, this this kind of pixie dust. But the Bible teaches that he is a person. He is God. Secondly, the role the Holy Spirit plays in our lives couldn't be played out by a thing or, or, or a force of some sort. Now... These things are not in your outline. They wouldn't fit in your outline. But if you're a note taker and you want to take these things down, jot them down. I'm going to read to you the things that Jesus does. And there's loads of scripture, like loads of scripture that I don't have time to read. But I'd be happy to give that to you should you want to look these things up on your own. The Holy Spirit does a lot. And my point in bringing this up to you is to say that a force can't do this. Uh, uh, Some sort of cosmic little pixie dust little, ooh, just a, oh, a force doesn't do this. A person does this. For example, uh, the Bible says that, that the Holy Spirit knows the thoughts of God, 1 Corinthians 2.11. That means that the Holy Spirit has intellect. The Holy Spirit has a mind. The Holy Spirit has emotions. He can be grieved, Ephesians 4.30. Uh, the Holy Spirit has will. He has a desire. He distributes spiritual gifts in the church according to his will, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11. He does things that only a person can do. He teaches, Luke 12, 12. He testifies, John 15, 26. He leads and he directs, Matthew 4 and verse 1. He gives guidance. Uh, This is more than the force is strong with this one, right? This is personal guidance. In the moment, grace is how he, he equips believers and shows believers his love and his care for them. 
It gives guidance, Mark 13, 11. He convicts. He convicts. John 16, verses 7 and 8. That means the Holy Spirit within me, indwelling me, which we'll look at in a moment, is the same, and we would say is even better, than a brother or a sister looking at me saying, this in your life is off. This can be right. The Holy Spirit can do that. The Holy Spirit does that. In fact, when a brother or a sister were to look at me and to say that, or if I were to look at you and to say that, the only reason it clicks, the only reason the bell goes ding, is because the Holy Spirit is doing the convicting, not because of the eloquence of the speaker. The Holy Spirit speaks, Acts 8 and verse 29. And there's like 19 other parts in the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit speaks. The Holy Spirit intercedes, Romans 8 and verse 26. The Holy Spirit reveals things. Mark 12, verse 36. And lastly, an impersonal force can't be lied to. Acts 5 and verse 3, blasphemed. Matthew 12, 31, or insulted. Hebrews 10 and verse 29. God has not left his people with a force. God has not indwelled us with this special type of potion or something that's within us it is listen a person a person in the holy spirit the person of jesus christ has ascended to heaven the person of the holy spirit has come down and indwelt his people now i'm curious maybe this is a bit much to think about particularly as you've just heard it but what about you what difference does it make to know the holy spirit isn't an impersonal force, but an actual person. Well, maybe as we continue to look at how this plays itself out, uh, there'll be further application for you as well. Second point, the Holy Spirit was sent to be our helper. Helper, look at John 14, 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. Verse 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. This is where the rubber really meets the road, in my opinion, in the fact that the Holy Spirit's a person. He's our helper, and he helps us personally and specifically. So here's the thing. Today, I may need comfort, but you may need boldness. Uh, Today, uh, 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 he may need to be convicted of sin, but she needs to be helped in her unbelief. Uh, Someone may need wisdom, but someone else may need faith. It's not just like, okay, well, listen, I'm God and I can do it all, but we're going to have to take this one thing at a time. Take a number. That's just not how it works. The Holy Spirit has indwelled each and every person and can provide the -the in-the-moment help, the -the in-the-moment grace in your hour of need right here and right now. God can help. God will help. He's our very present help in time of trouble, present with us in that the Holy Spirit has been sent to us personally and helps us Personally, that's what Jesus did. He didn't have one way of ministering to people. No one size fits all with Jesus. I mean, if we had time today, we could look back at John chapter 3 and the way that Jesus speaks to Nicodemus versus John chapter 4 and the way that Jesus speaks to the woman at the well. Essentially saying the same thing in very different ways. Uh, You may recall that in John chapter 3, Jesus looks at Nicodemus and says, except a man be born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus looks back, asks him the most awkward question he's ever asked anyone, which is, is it possible for me to enter my mother's womb a second time? Yeah, awkward laugh. And then Jesus looks at him and goes, how can you be a spiritual person? How can you be a leader and not get these things? 
John chapter 4, you have the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. She's coming to the well in the middle of the day. She's trying not to be seen. Jesus starts out this evangelistic approach by saying, can I have some water? And then has a discussion with her back and forth, back and forth, eventually revealing the fact that he is the Christ. It was the same with Nicodemus, just in a different circumstance. But did Jesus look at the Samaritan woman at the well and go, what's the matter with you? How could you not understand that I'm Jesus, I'm the the son of God? No. Because Jesus doesn't have a one-size-fits-all ministry. And he asks her questions, and she answered. And she answers that shows that she's not getting it. But Jesus never looks and goes, what's the matter with you? He draws her out. Just like Jesus didn't have a one-size-fits-all ministry, the Holy Spirit doesn't have a one-size-fits-all helping ministry. He teaches, he ministers, he helps, he comforts in very specific, very personal ways. Jesus promises to send a helper that is not unlike him. Hey, I'm going to go to the Father but I'm sending you the helper. I'm going to go to the Father. I'm going to be in heaven, but I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. That's not a downgrade. So that's why it's important for us to realize that he is a person, not unlike Jesus, and he's a helper, not unlike Jesus. Point three, the Holy Spirit doesn't simply visit, but is at home with us. Now, this is, this is key. John 14, 17, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Verse 23, we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, I want to explain to you what I'm going to call three types of presences, 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 three types of way the Lord is present. There we go. Present that uh, when it comes to God, the Holy Spirit, as we might see him throughout the scriptures. First of all, there's omnipresence, right? Omnipresence, God is everywhere. Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I make my bed in heaven, uh, if I send to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. God is everywhere. He always sees us. We're never anywhere without him. Omnipresence, right? He's just in general, he is everywhere. That's omnipresence. And that's totally true. He's just as much here as he is across the street, as he is in your home, as he is in another church. He He is there. Then there's the manifest presence of God where God uh, shows up to meet a real-time need, uh, to meet a need in real time. The, the, the example that comes to my mind is uh, Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13. So God leads the people of Israel by, uh, in, how does he lead them? By day in a pillar of cloud and by night in a pillar of fire. Manifest presence. This is what the people needed at that time. He shows up, boom. Now, was he there beforehand? Yeah, but you couldn't literally physically, visibly follow him and the people needed to be led. So he goes, okay, I'll be a cloud by day. I'll be fire by night. What do you want? Boom, shows up. The Egyptians pursue them. Do you know what that cloud does? Moves to the back. Read the, read the account. It's awesome. The cloud moves to the back. The people are able to go into the Red Sea on dry land. Okay, and then he stands back. Manifest presence. He's meeting a real-time need. Uh, allows them to cross the Red Sea on dry ground, allowing the Egyptians to pursue them. He then says, if you read the details, he clogs the chariot wheels so that as the, this is in the scriptures, clogs the chariot wheels so that as those chariots make their way into the Red Sea, they slow down 
Then all of a sudden, the Egyptians say, you know what, this is not cool. Like, now they realize, right? I'm starting to think this God is going to fight for them. It's like, wow, thank you, Captain Obvious. We should probably turn around because the Lord fights for his people. You think? And then as they turn around, all of a sudden, lo and behold, the sea swallows them up. Manifest presence of God. This is, specific, this is more than just omnipresence. God is everywhere. This is dude, watch this presence of God. To meet that need right then and there. It literally says the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. Threw them. Manifest presence. Omnipresence. Manifest presence. Now, indwelling presence. Indwelling presence. This is, I'll, I'll say this. It's manifest presence uh, that is personal, permanent, and portable. It's the presence of God that is personal, and it's not just come and go. It's not just visit and leave. It's permanent. It's within me, Jesus Christ living within me through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that is personal, permanent, and portable. He doesn't come and go as needed. He's not acting on behalf of the community. That's what we saw in Exodus. He's acting on behalf of the people of God. This is he's acting on behalf of you, you. And you, and you, and you. It's you and me, individually, you. He acts on behalf of you. Keep your finger in the Gospel of John and turn back to Haggai. I want to show you the difference, or just an example of the difference. Haggai chapter 2. Sure, there's tons of highlighting in Haggai in your Bible. Just throw your Bible on the ground, it just opens up to Haggai. I'm so sure. Look at Haggai chapter 2. Okay. Check out verse 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua. Son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work for, now look at this, work for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Okay, this would be an example of the presence of God. Was God with his people? Of course he was with his people. Right here it says he was, I'm with you, declares the Lord, the Lord of hosts. And then it says, my spirit remains in your midst. That's a really, really cool thing. That's really, really great. It's not the same as the spirit dwelling inside each and every person, personally, individually, permanently, powerfully, portably. He goes with you. Doesn't just show up based on the need or doesn't just show up based on the circumstance. So I only showed you that to say that's a wonderful thing in Haggai. That's a wonderful thing. That's a wonderful thing in Exodus. Major upgrade with indwelling of the Holy Spirit in your life because of the new covenant. I put a quote in your outline. It says the Spirit dwelt with the Old Testament saints through the community but would not be in them individually and intimately since the Old Testament saints could not have enjoyed the benefits of the new covenant before it had been inaugurated. Question, 
How does the Holy Spirit permanently living within you impact, impact you? Knowing that God is permanently living within you. He's not making a tent. He's not just stopping by. He's made a home and abode with you. Living inside of you if you're a believer. How does that impact you? Is it different to you than him coming and going as needed? I say it's an upgrade. Maybe you say, eh, really as long as he's just kind of there when I need him. Really kind of all I need. But what I'm telling you is that the Lord God Almighty, who is mighty in battle throughout the Old Testament, is with you personally, individually, if you have a need for comfort, for guidance, for strength, for peace, for conviction of sin, even if nobody else has that same need. It's not like majority rules. Well, I know you need comfort, but no one else near needs comfort, so build a bridge and get over it. Throughout the Old Testament, we see God meeting the needs of his people, plural, right? And I'm telling you that as a result of Jesus Christ having come to earth, the fact that the veil has been rent in two from top to bottom, that the glory of God, the very presence of God that used to be so far away from people, that used to only be able to be approached by a certain number of people, that priests used to have to go in constantly on behalf of people, now not only can you go in there, but he has come into you. That's very, very, very different. Quickly now, the Holy Spirit enables us to heed God's word. So the Holy Spirit is a hymn. The Holy Spirit is a helper. The Holy Spirit makes his home within us. And the Holy Spirit enables us to heed God's word. Uh, No less than four times throughout this particular chapter that we read, we talk about the importance of Uh, of obeying God's word. Look at John 14. I'm still in Haggai. That's no good. Look at John 14 and verse 15. John 14, 15 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Look at John 14 and verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Two verses later, verse 23, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him. The next verse, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Or he says the same thing just from the negative perspective. Friends, it's important that we notice that in this particular portion of scripture where Jesus is talking about the helper coming to people, he highlights the need to keep his word. I think what that lets us know is that obedience is a bigger deal than we really realize. In two ways. It means more to God probably than we really understand. And it's probably harder for us to do than we actually really realize. Because constantly throughout this portion of scripture, we're seeing Jesus say, I'm going to give you a helper. He's going to be great. Here's one of the things he's going to help you do. He's going to help you obey. You're thinking, I thought maybe all this, that's kind of anticlimactic. Like, I'm going to give you a helper. It's going to be awesome. He's going to make his home with you. And you're thinking, he's going to help me to walk on water. And he's going to help me to do this. And then he goes, he's going to help you to obey. And you're like, That's probably indicative of how we we have a little bit too low of a view of obedience. And we probably think too much of ourselves to think, I could obey on my own. I mean, there's times I don't, but that's my choice. And I I can make that right. I can fix that. I can pull myself up with my bootstraps and just fix it. Obedience is important. So important that Jesus highlights it throughout this chapter several times. 
and says, I'll give you the Holy Spirit to help you do that. And John says it elsewhere, 1 John 3 and verse 24, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him, right? There it is again, God in him. The person who's keeping God's commandments has the Holy Spirit abiding in him. That's, that's, it works both that he helps us to keep his commandments. When we keep his commandments, we know, wow, that's the Lord working through me. He's helping me to obey. He's helping me do the right thing again and again and again. I wonder if there's one area of your life in which you need specific help being obedient to God's word. So, well, there's many areas in my life. Okay, well, think of one area in your life. Just name one, the first one that comes to your mind. Be specific. What's one area in your life in which you need specific help being obedient to God's word? Do you sense the Holy Spirit? What's the Holy Spirit doing with that? He just called it to your mind, whatever it is. Are we at the conviction stage where it's like, oh, I, I really need to, I need to do better in this. I need to do this or not do this. Are we at the growing stage? Are we at the changing stage? Are we at the thankfulness stage where you look back and you say, wow, I'm, I'm not, not the way I used to be. I'm not perfect, but wow, look, I'm way different. But the Holy Spirit is present throughout that whole process. Do you see that? He'll, he'll reveal the problem. But he won't just leave you there. He convicts you. He makes you hate it like he hates it. Makes you love Jesus even more than that sin. And causes people and, 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 and things to come into your life. The word of God to have an effect on your life so that you can grow and you can change. Where are you at in that process? If we were to map that out as a, as a continuum, if you will. Where, where are you? What's the Holy Spirit doing in your life with that thing that comes to your mind, that, that one area of your life in which you need specific help being obedient to God's word. Do you sense the Holy Spirit growing and changing you? And finally, I want to point out this last fact and spend the rest of our time, what little time we have on this. Number five, the Holy Spirit inside you is better than Jesus beside you. And that's a subtitle to a book by, I can't think, J.D. Greer called Jesus Continued. The Holy Spirit inside you is better than Jesus beside you. Now, that might just, okay, that's, that's fun. That rhymes. You pastors get excited. We really do get excited over that stuff. But, but that's not the point. Do you believe that? Listen to me. I'm saying that the Holy Spirit inside of you now is better than if Jesus was here sitting next to you. I'm, I'm trying to poke the bear. Look at John 14 and verse 12. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And what? And what? And greater works than these will he do. Because I'm going to the Father. So Jesus is like, hey, I'm out. Now, whatever, I've done my work, I'm going to do my work, and then I'm going to go. And then I'm going to send the helper to you. And you're going to do the things that I've done and even greater works than I've done. If he's done his job, he's going to go to heaven. What does he mean? What could he possibly mean? I mean, read it again. Like, do you believe that? Jesus says those who believe in him will do what he did and then some because he's going to the father. He literally links his leaving 
with the greater works. His reason and purposes for coming to earth will have been fulfilled. He taught, he preached, he trained, he sent, he died, he rose, and then he'll float away into heaven. And if you look at verse 12, it says, greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Now, maybe you're thinking, how do I do greater works than Jesus? He walked on water. Am I going to like run on water? Like, like, like how? What does that even mean? How do I do greater works than Jesus? Well, turn to the book of Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, Luke writes this. In the first book, O Theophilus, what's Luke's first book? The Gospel of Luke. So this would have been a two-volume set, literally. In fact, it dovetails. The last thing Luke writes in his Gospel is Jesus' ascension. The first thing Luke writes in the, in the account of the Acts of the Apostles is the ascension. So it literally just whew, it flows beautifully together. Verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. I'm going to emphasize a certain word here. Let me see if you can pick up on it. Look at verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. I read one word differently. Did you sense that? What's the word? Began. Not finish. See, see, Jesus started something no one else could do. No one. But it was never, ever his intention for it to finish with him. His earthly ministry was just what he began to do and began to teach until he was taken up into heaven. After that, listen to me, greater things needed to be done than what he did. Greater things needed to be done than what he did. He started the new covenant. He enabled us to have this personal relationship. He died on the cross for our sins. When he said it is finished, it has been paid in full. Nothing else needs to be paid for, but a lot needs to be done. This is what Jesus began to do. A lot needed to be done. Greater things needed to be done in order for the gospel to be spread. So maybe you're thinking... How do I do greater works than Jesus? How does that work? Well, consider the following. If you were to continue reading in the book of Acts, you would see on the day of Pentecost, more believers were added to the faith than throughout Jesus' entire earthly ministry. Do you realize that? This group of 12 becomes thousands more. That's a greater work than Jesus ever did. That thousands would join this inner circle of what was 12. Right? Make a church in a minute. 12 to 1,000. Thousands. That's greater. Greater in effect, greater in number than anything Jesus ever did at the time. Leading someone to have his or her sins forgiven is a greater work than making a lame man walk or a blind man see. We love signs. We get really excited about signs and wonders and the miraculous. But it's about the destination. When Jesus did these things, in fact, when Jesus raised the paralytic, he did so to prove he had the power to forgive sins. Signs point to destinations, but not destinations in and of themselves. 
Leading someone to have his or her sins forgiven is a greater work than making a lame man walk. Because the lame man is going to walk, the blind lady is going to see, and they're both still going to die and go to eternity somewhere. Talking to somebody about the truth of the gospel and getting them to understand their need for a savior and pointing them to Christ and seeing the Lord do a work in their life and cause them to come to salvation, that's a greater work than walking on water. Do you understand? It's more fun to watch someone walk on water. Maybe that's kind of, wow, cool, look at that. Hey, Instagram, that's more fun to see. But the effect, the impact is much greater when you lead someone to a forgiveness of sins and peace with God than any of the miraculous. Signs point to destinations, but are not destinations in and of themselves. Think about this. Jesus' entire earthly influence was limited, yes, I just said limited, to a very small corner of the world, a very small section of Palestine. After he ascends to heaven, his followers divide and conquer. Why? Because they love each other, but they really love Jesus. And when Jesus leaves, like, well, there's no, we're not going to stay around here. We got work to do. They divide and conquer. Jesus was gone, the Spirit was in them, and now it was time to go. There were things to do. They reached more people in more places than Jesus ever did. You, you understand that? Just, just categorically, just more just, than Jesus ever did throughout his earthly ministry. Greater things. As New Testament Christians, we have the unique ability to do greater works than Jesus did. The impact of the church, listen to me is greater, reaching more people in more places than Jesus ever did during his earthly ministry, ever. And that's not heaping insult on Jesus. That's how Jesus wanted it to be. The book of Acts has a very awkward ending. It doesn't resolve because we live it today. I pulled a quote from that book I mentioned from J.D. Greer. It says, don't mock those who overestimate their potential for the kingdom of God. Mock those who underestimate it. extraordinary things done by ordinary people extraordinary results from ordinary obedience true story at our last church uh, our pastor was invited to somebody's home um, who was a family member of someone else who was in our church these people were lost and they said could you help us could you help us share the gospel we just want to we, we're trying to be good witnesses. We're just not as, our, we don't feel like we're as articulate. I know you've trained us well. We can do that. But would you come with us to help us share the gospel with, I think it was a sibling and a sibling-in-law. He says, sure, okay. So he goes to the house. Just, just ordinary obedience, right? This is, yeah, we're Christians, pastor, sure, goes to the house, shares the gospel with these people. Falls on deaf ears. Does nothing. A kid is playing video games in another room. Overhears the gospel. God saves him. Ordinary obedience, extraordinary results. The kid then joins my youth group. He's another student. My youth group at the time in New York grows in Christ, seems to want to go into the ministry, 
wants to go to Bible college. He's the only Christian in his family. So I offered just to take him to, somebody recommended a Bible college, so I offered to take him to a Bible college because they're not going to take him. They're not against it, but they're not going to invest time and money to having this person pursue this undergraduate degree in, in, in theology. So I take him to a Bible college. We spend two days on campus. He gets a tour. He speaks with admissions, comes back, decides to go. Today, he's a pastor. He's a pastor. Ordinary. Th- I, I did something very ordinary. I got on an airplane. Uh, my friend did something very ordinary. He went to their house with a Bible. Very ordinary. Extraordinary results. Because the Holy Spirit goes with us at all times, gives us these opportunities, shows us this truth, and produces extraordinary results through ordinary means like, a, like another human being. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is in us and helps us personally. We need to rely upon him to walk in obedience to God's word. Let me ask you a question. How much impact do you plan on having for the kingdom of God? How would your life change if you took seriously Jesus' promise that you'll do greater works than he did? I don't know, I just figured I would I'll go to church and join a small group and serve and hang out with Christian people and like not sin and stuff. Greater works. Look at me. Greater works. That's what Jesus has in store for people like you and like me who have the Holy Spirit living within us. How would your life change? How would your perspective change on whatever you find menial or whatever you find just, oh, that's just my life, if you acknowledge the fact that God himself lives within you and that you've been called to not kind of help Jesus out. I think I'll just do, I'll just, (laughs) greater works. Would that make you more sensitive and more aware to opportunities that exist within your life? Would you then see that little thing that you did as, that's actually, that might not be a little thing. God might be really doing something big in that little thing. That little conversation you had with a son or a daughter or a neighbor or a coworker or a person or a friend or an enemy greater things. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to understand what this means. Help us to understand what it means to have the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us to do these greater things within our lives um, for your sake, for your glory, for the advancement of your kingdom. Lord, as we embark upon this sermon series together and as we look upon what it means to be filled with and living in and, and, and functioning with the Holy Spirit, Lord, would you show us how we can be more pleasing to you, more effective for your kingdom's sake and for you, the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, and for the advancement of your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.